You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. Hopefully you had an amazing Thanksgiving, and um, December is here with this weather. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm, t- Psalms chapter 2. This morning, as a church family, we're going to kick off the Christmas season together turning our eyes towards Messiah. Christmas is when we recognize the coming of Jesus, first time around. But do you know that there's a second coming? He's coming again. And his redemptive work is not done on the earth. So although Christmas is a time of like overtly, intentionally looking back at history, I believe as followers of Jesus, Christmas invites us into the redemptive story every single year. It's like it's on the calendar. We have an invitation every single year for a lot of the month of December to be invited into God's redemptive story in a fresh way, to be found on our knees with a posture of seeking after Jesus, saying, God, what are you doing? How are you redeeming humanity? I want to be a part of what you're doing. So I believe this Christmas season, God wants to do a fresh work in your life. I believe this Christmas season can be not just a season of busyness and craziness with family gatherings, but it can be a season of real encounter for you. It can be a real season of revival in your hearts, of you encountering Jesus in a fresh way, this one who came as God man, the God-man uh, in the form of a baby 2,000 years ago. I'm praying that it'll, it'll make uh, the redemptive story fresh and alive to you. So the way this series is going to uh, unfold is every single week we're going to unpack certain biblical uh, prophecy that pointed the nation of Israel towards this coming Messiah. Kind of a key aspect of the Messiahship prophetically that, uh, that kind of uh, built up the anticipation of the nation of Israel to, to have their eyes looking for this one. Who is going to be this anointed one? Who is this chosen one of God, this redeemer, this rescuer? That word Messiah simply means rescuer or deliverer. And so we're, we're going to take a look at a few of these key prophecies. And this morning we're going to look at um, one of the most prominent aspects of this Messiah, which is that he will come from the line of David. He will be a king in the line of the, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, King David. So we're going to look at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a prominent psalm of coronation as, as if you were a, a first century Jew you would have looked at Psalm, psalm 2 as a, a prominent prophetic passage pointing us towards this Messiah who would be a king. So this morning, one of my hopes is that you would almost be able to put yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew. Because it's, it's always easy to look back in history and be like, been like, oh man, they should have seen it coming. They should have recognized Jesus. I mean, he fulfills all these prophecies so specifically Um, so accurately, how did they miss it? But the deception in that is we are still in the midst of God's God's redemptive story. And if we have postures or heart postures of pride looking back at history, it's it's probable that we have a certain amount of pride that's blinding us. Uh, It's not allowing us to accurately sense what God is doing in the here and now. And obviously then towards the future, Jesus... fulfilled these prophetic promises, but many of them, he fulfilled them only partially because there's an even greater fulfillment that is yet to come. So we're in the midst of it. 
I hope there's a little anticipation growing in your heart. We are in the midst of it. We're in the midst of God's redemptive story. We need to recognize it. I'm praying there'll there'll be this kind of readiness, this hunger in your heart that's growing that says, I want to recognize what what God is doing. I want to be found ready for this Messiah who's going to come again. You can think of his first coming as like a down payment or deposit of God's redemptive work. It was like, this is proof. He's putting his money where his mouth is. I'm going to send my son. He's coming once and he will return again. There's a second coming. So we're caught right here in the middle between his first coming and his second coming. There should be this anticipation as followers of Jesus, like there was this anticipation growing for the nation of Israel. So go with me, 2,000 years in rewind, go back to the nation of Israel. You are a devout follower of Jesus, okay? Put your sandals on, put your flowing garments on, and you're there with me. All you have in terms of Um, knowledge and understanding is what the Hebrews would call the Tanakh. The Tanakh, why don't you say that to your neighbor, Tanakh. There you go, a little guttural sound there. You know Hebrew now, so. The Tanakh is simply the 39 books of of our Bible as we know it. That's what they had. They had the Torah, the the five books of Moses. They had the the rest of the history of Israel. They had the, 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 the prophetic books, the 39 books of the Bible. And they would look at this and they'd peer into it and they would say, ah, there's a work that God is doing through the nation of Israel that's yet to be fulfilled. And there'd be this growing anticipation. If you know anything of Israel's history, they have have been a a nation oftentimes oppressed and ruled over by by the Babylonians, by the Persians. We get closer to the coming of Jesus. We see them again overthrown by the Greeks, you know, Alexander the Great. About 30 years prior to, to Jesus' first arrival, they're overtaken by the Romans. So when Jesus comes onto the planet, there is just these centuries of oppression and rule, you know, them being ruled over. And this longing for freedom, this longing for liberation, this longing for their nation to rise to the place that was prophetically told that they would rise to. They would be a nation that was, you know, was, uh, conceived through, the, um, through, the father, through Father Abraham, that he would give, be father to a nation that would bless all the nations. In this moment, as they're now ruled by, by Rome, it's hard for them to see that. And so if you're a devout follower of Jesus, the longing of your heart is for Messiah to come to fulfill these promises that were foretold centuries prior. And they would look to Psalm chapter two as this coming day, this coronation psalm that that keeps their eyes fixed on the king. So picture yourself, first century Jew, on your knees before the Lord with Psalm chapter two open. This is what it says. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's like the, the people of Israel knew, know they're a part of this divine work, this redemptive work in the heavenly places. And the nations like busy themselves, scheming and strategizing how they're gonna continue to rule, almost kind of uh, scoffing at God. Verse four, 
He who sits in the heavens laughs, though. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. They saw this coming king as one who would truly break the bonds of oppression that had been over them for centuries. This one who would come and truly set them free. So their eyes with with hearts of anticipation were set towards this king, this coming Messiah. When would he come? He'd come from the line of David. There were these three centuries of silence before then the coming of Jesus. You can turn to Matthew chapter one. Growing growing anticipation in your heart. Jesus Christ is born. It says Matthew chapter one. Maybe you skip over the genealogies, which oftentimes I do as well, but the reason they're significant is because they do point us to who these these, um, recorders of the gospels are writing to. And Matthew is writing to Jews. So you receive this letter from Matthew and He's pointing you towards this Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the one you, you and your family line have anticipated for centuries. Matthew chapter one, verse one, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who is he? It's the son of David. He's in the line of David, the son of Abraham. So not only is he a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's, he's in the line of Abraham, but he is in the line of David. He is also a king. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and on and on and on to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Jesus is the son of David. And for Israel, that was a significant thing because they anticipated this coming king. They anticipated this one who would come as a better king. You see, King David represented the the golden era of Israel. King David was like the the best years in the nation of Israel. There was this true monarchy that was like the, the, um, the power of their day. And David would take over other nations around them. And he pointed the people towards one God, towards Yahweh, in the midst of all this idolatry around them. David David is one who pointed Israel towards God and and pointed people towards the glory of God. And so in the the history of the nation of Israel, they saw David as the best king they'd ever had, but they have an anticipation, this one who will be an even better king. In the line of David, the king of all kings, Messiah will come as a better king. So then why did many not recognize Jesus? I think that's then the pressing question, right? If we're in the midst of God's redemptive story now and Jesus is going to come, I think it would be, it'd be wise of us, prudent of us to stop and pause and say, hey, if they missed it 2,000 years ago, many people missed it. Even though he, he fulfilled so many prophecies and yet many did not recognize him to be the one. Why did they not, why did they not recognize him to be the Messiah, to be this 
better king. So we'll take a look at that right now. Jesus is from the line of David, but he's the son of a carpenter. So I want you to think of this like the way God is working out his redemptive story because this can help us moving forward as we peer towards the future and Christ's second return. God always, he loves to tell, invite us into his story through prophecy. And it's very usually specific prophecy that it's obvious when it's fulfilled, but it's always housed within something that almost like turns it on head. It, it, it house, it's housed in something that almost makes it hidden to those that are, are proud, are arrogant. Because here's, here's our great um, principle to keep central to your seeking of Jesus and his return, anticipation of his return. That God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He also uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. You can keep those principles just locked in your heart. So yes, he will always fulfill the promises that he set in motion, these prophecies that, he, that, that have uh, been spoken about. He'll fulfill them, but they'll always be kind of housed in something that almost turns them on head, that makes them hard to see for those that are proud, that are arrogant, that are self-sufficient. So here we see that Jesus was obviously in the line of David, but at the same time, he was the son of a carpenter. He grew up in Nazareth, Nazareth was like a tiny little peasant village. Now, carpenters were not peasants. Carpenters were amongst the small uh, sector of middle class, if there was much of a middle class in, in the Roman Empire. So he was better off than some, but still, I mean, he was not of the elite. He was not from some prominent family, directly. And so oftentimes, Jesus comes in the midst of the commonness, and many people rejected him because of that. Coming from Nazareth, Nazareth, coming from the fishing villages of Galilee. Second, Jesus was born in the city of David, but the city had no room for him. So it was foretold in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that although Bethlehem wasn't large enough, great enough to be included in the clans of Judah, from Bethlehem, which is the birthplace of David, from the city of David, one would come who would rule over Israel. And so the Jews, the nation of Israel, again, your first century Jew, you're looking towards Bethlehem as the birthplace of this one, this king that would come. Well, Jesus checks that box, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. King Herod called for a census and, and Jesus' family went back to Bethlehem right when Mary was about to give birth to Jesus. But the city had no room for him. There wasn't this great anticipation for his arrival in that moment. Came in the sleepiness of the night and, and there's speculation as to what they mean when, there's no, when, when Luke chapter two says there was no room for the inn. It could have been a guest room or uh, that his family didn't have room in, in their guest room or it could have been that literally in the, the inn in the city there was no room. Regardless, he came to be as the, 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 the son of man, the savior of humanity, born amongst livestock. And so again, it's the foolish things of this world that confound the wise. Third is this, Jesus presents his kingdom, but his kingdom is not of this world. If you're to look at the, the ministry of Jesus, which is historical fact, like in terms of the historical authority of the accounts of the gospels, 
There's nothing that even compares to all the, 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 the scores of manuscripts that we have to authenticate the Gospels. And so just from like a historical lens, if you look back at the message of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the central theme is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. That's what he's always talking about. And from his, from his inauguration of his ministry, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And on his last day, as he stands before Pilate, and Pilate says, hey, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you, you said it. You said it right, yeah. From beginning to end, there's no denying what Jesus is about. He comes declaring what the kingdom of God is, is like and constantly teaching about it. But yet some did not capture it. It's like they're anticipating a king. They're anticipating this one who's going to present to us a kingdom and invite us into this kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, in a fresh way. And that's all Jesus is about. But why is it that so many didn't recognize it? It's because his kingdom is not of this world. Fourth is this. Jesus demonstrates his authority but his authority supersedes titles. Time and time again, as you look through the Gospels, people are amazed at the authority that Jesus carried. You know, um, that just first glance, his miracles and his, the healings pointed to his authority. Who is, this, uh, who is this man who has authority to cast out demons and heal the blind? This one who has, he can command the storm to stop. He even has authority over nature. Who is, this one who, has a, who is this one who has authority to forgive sins? Who is this man? And then, and then it, beyond that, if you look at his teachings, people are amazed at the authority by which he taught. But you'll see that his authority did not fit in the boxes of positions and titles. And many first century Jews, that was a stumbling block for them. They didn't recognize Jesus for who he was as Messiah because he didn't check the boxes as, as a governor, as a, as a ruler in a, in a formal way, in a, national, in a national way. His authority superseded titles. Matthew chapter 20 is a, is a beautiful story of some that recognized it in the midst of others that did not. Matthew chapter 20, there's a story of Jesus walking into Jericho and there's two blind men sitting outside the city gates, and they, they, they call out to Jesus. And what do they call him? They call him son of David. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, son of David. And this is in the midst of some who, I mean, they're kind of following Jesus as, as a spectacle, as, you know, wow, who is this man out of maybe genuine curiosity? But here are these men of real faith who are able to recognize the real prophetic significance of this one who's walking into Jericho that day, and it catches Jesus' ear and he comes over and he touches them and he heals them both. His authority supersedes titles. And fifth is this, Jesus, is, he blesses the nations. But it wasn't through resources and, and gold and in some economic way. Instead, it's through his sacrificial love and forgiveness. You see, for the nation of Israel, they look back to their father, Father Abraham, the father of the nation of, of Israel and he was a man of great wealth, great prominence, great resources. And they, and they always thought of that, even as they, they looked towards the promised land. I mean, the nation of Israel needed to be established with certain resources and plots of land. And that's the way they continued to think. And I'm not saying that's completely irrelevant. 
But Jesus becomes a blessing to all the nations in that coronation psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Verse 8, it says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. They anticipated this Messiah to come and to be a blessing to all the nations. And Jesus was that, but it wasn't through resources, through some physical, kingly uh, authority, but instead it was through sacrificial love and forgiveness. Their king hanging on a cross would somehow be a blessing to all the nations. That was a stumbling block for some. They didn't recognize it. So hopefully you're tracking with me. This Messiah would come as a better king. This was the anticipation, your anticipation. As a first century Jew, devout follower of God. But many did not recognize it. So how can this then be applied to our lives then today if we come back to present day 2019? God's redemptive work is still, we're still in the midst of it. You and I were in the midst of it. Every Christmas season we're invited to, to, to um, be familiarized with it to be immersed in it. He's coming again, and I want to be ready. I want to be ready for Messiah, amen? So here are five hindrances of the heart. As we, as we look at those lists of ways in which Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, but yet many did not recognize, I believe there's five hindrances of the heart that I want to point us to that really keep us from recognizing Jesus and his work in our midst. One is pride. There can be a self-sufficiency, a lack of ability to recognize our need for an even better king. If he's in the realm of a political realm or a governmental king, it's great because that'll actually bring a blessing, a direct blessing physically on our lives. But an actual king that will rule in our hearts, that's maybe too much. So oftentimes pride is, is a huge stumbling block for some. It's a hindrance of our heart. And I would say oftentimes, especially in the Western world, pride cloaks itself in the form of religion. Many people that grow up around Christianity, they grow up around religion. There's a form of Christianity that they'll accept. But when it actually begins to deal with the inner recesses of their heart, they say it's too much. My parents are first-generation Christians, first-generation followers of Jesus. Seniors in high school, they encounter the gospel for the first time. They grew up around the church because most people in the Midwest grew up around church in some form or fashion, whether you're a Christmas Christian or you're every Sunday Christian. A lot of people grew up around the church, and my parents did as well, but they, they actually encountered the gospel for the first time their senior year of high school. They surrendered their lives to this one who died for them, who paid the price that they knew they could never pay. They could never clean themselves up to present themselves before a holy God. And they knew they could have a relationship with their father, their heavenly father, their creator. They surrendered their life to them. But I want to tell you that they weren't accepted by their family. Their family didn't, didn't accept, they, they, their family rejected this gospel that they had received. It seemed like an offense to their heritage, to their form of kind of comfortable Western Christianity. You're going to surrender your life to this one? What we gave you wasn't good enough? Eventually, what ended up happening was my, my parents, or my mom led her parents to the Lord. Their hearts began to soften, and they received Jesus. And my mom ended up leading her sister to the Lord as well. But that's a common story for many who actually encountered Jesus as their Savior. And it moves beyond just a Sunday morning 
uh, form of Christianity to one who actually begins to impact your Monday morning and impact your daily life, impact the calling on your life, the purposes of your life. It begins to drive and motivate everything about you. Second is this, busyness. I think it's just important for you to say it out loud sometimes that busyness is an enemy of your soul. The enemy loves to busy Christians with all, all sorts of things that distract us. If he can just busy us with things that don't matter, perhaps the church won't continue to move forward then. But it's a hindrance to our heart. And if you think of all the first century Jews that missed it, because of the busyness. I, I don't want to be one of those followers of God that miss it because I'm so distracted. Third is this, not willing to be taught. There were many that put God in a box. They believed that they had a kind of arrived in terms of their knowledge and understanding. They had almost backed themselves in a corner. And I see that sometimes in, in the church, big C. Some believers, especially when it comes to end-time theology, they, they back themselves into a corner, thinking that we have it all figured out. When in fact, I want to be found on my knees with scripture open wide saying, God, reveal yourself to me in my generation. I want to know what you're doing. I want to recognize your work in our midst. I want to have a, a heart posture that says, Holy Spirit, guide me into all truth. Rather than trying to come up with the seven-point plan of God's second coming and exactly how it's going to do. And some people go as, as far as trying to set dates. We don't do that. Those are hindrances of the heart. Fourth is this, titles and positions. May we never cling to titles and positions. May I never cling to my position as pastor is somehow my identity. May you never, as you, as you get older in this life, may you never cling to your titles or your position. They become a hindrance to our heart. That applies to organizations as well. It's pretty much just historical fact that as organizations age and they, they begin to cling to an identity other than Christ, and I'm talking about denominations and church institutions, they also begin to stagnate. The vibrancy of the spirit, the vibrancy of the gospel the, the vibrancy of the mission gets thwarted by titles and positions. And may we never cling to titles and positions. God always loves to take the foolish things of this world and confound the wise through, the move, through, through moves of God. Turn of the 20th century, a move of God, a revival hits Los Angeles. And God uses a one-eyed black man. Seriously, William Seymour. And many rejected it. Many in the church rejected it. I'm not talking about the lost, like those that aren't following Jesus. I'm talking about those in the church, they rejected it because it didn't fit the, the, the boxes, check the boxes of titles and positions of organizations and denominations. And time and time again, as you see most revivals, most moves of God, they're oftentimes rejected by the mainstream of Christianity because of this hindrance of the heart, which is titles and positions, and fifth is this, wrong thinking. You can think of all the isms of our generation and put them in this. These are empty philosophies that sound really nice. They can sound compassionate. They can sound very thoughtful. 
But what the, what they end up doing to believers, they begin to twist our thinking and turn they turn us away from the word of God in a heart posture that says, God, I'm desperate for you. I want to know your ways. So you can, you can think of more relativism. You can think of, th- of scientism. You can think of uh, feminism. You can think of racism. All of those isms, you throw them in that in that, that, that batch on number five, wrong thinking. Those are hindrances of the heart. And we reject those and we say, God, we want your thoughts, your ways. They're higher than our ways. We don't adopt the philosophies of this world. These, these, new, these new thoughts that just sound really nice. They, they sound really appealing. We reject those things. We want your ways, God. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come forward. We're gonna sing that song, We Are Ready because I felt like it'd be fitting for us to kick off this series and ready our hearts before the Lord as we enter into the Christmas season. It's December 1st. For some, it's still too early for Christmas, but we're gonna go for it. King Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He presented a kingdom that as scholars describe it, is present but not yet. It's like he introduced, it to a, introduced us to it and he taught us to pray your, your, your will on earth as it is in heaven. He invited us to be these conduits of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And there's coming a day when in, in, in an even fuller sense, he's gonna bring the kingdom of God by establishing a new heaven and a new earth. His second coming, it's for real. And I want us to be found ready. So we're invited into this relationship with King Jesus. His authority is real. His love is real. He knows the inner recesses of your heart. If you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to picture yourself standing before a mighty king, a majestic king, a powerful king with all authority, and it's King Jesus. He has a a crown on his head that's beautiful. The throne room is elaborate and ornate. It's beautiful. You stand before him and he wants your heart. He has all authority in his, in his name and his position and who he is. And he wants your heart. And this Christmas season in a fresh way, he wants us to recognize what he's doing. He wants to rule and reign in your mind, in your heart, in your family. He wants to rule and reign over your thought processes and the purposes and callings on your life. He's King Jesus. I want you before this King who's full of love and grace and mercy. We present to him the hindrances that you feel like are are holding you back. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's not willing to be taught. Maybe it's titles and positions. Maybe it's wrong thinking. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's hard to believe that this one we read about in the history books, historical book of the Bible that truly has the authority. Maybe you have a sickness in your body that becomes a hindrance to you really believing. 
Maybe you've experienced too much tragedy or crisis. Why don't you place those things before King Jesus? He is enough. Place them before him. Whatever it is, Lord, we place these things before you. You are the one who has all authority to rule and reign over every situation in this place. There are some that have walked in here with a heaviness of depression. They place it before you. And God, you are more than enough to rule and reign over that, to replace it with a peace that surpasses understanding. There are some that have walked in here with sickness. And Lord Jesus, I know you can set free. You paid for that on the cross. Last Sunday after church, someone came up to me and said that God healed their hands. They had had pain in their hands all week long and the weeks prior, and God healed their hands of this pain in their hands. Heard another testimony of, not from our church, but a, a testimony in the body of Christ of people being healed of bipolar. We praise God for these healings, the ways in which he's working, and he is still alive today. His redemptive work is still working amongst us. And there are some in this place that you place yourself before him and say, God, I need you to heal me. You cry out like the blind, the blind dudes outside of Jericho and you say, son of David, have mercy on us. He sets free. That's what he does. He heals. There are others in this place you've been blinded by pride, religious pride and busyness. Place those things before him right now. Hallelujah, Jesus. This Christmas season, Lord, we thank you for the invitation to experience your redemptive work in a fresh way. Thank you for opening our eyes and opening up our hearts to receive all that you have for us. God, we want in our generation to be a part of what you are doing on the earth. We want to be a part of your redemptive work. We want to recognize it. Thank you for grafting us into this work that you've started through the nation of Israel. We want to be a part of it, God. We want to have hearts that recognize it in your name. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org.